Week after week, and as I will keep saying to you, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is Christianity's answer to the question, how do we flourish? The Sermon on the Mount is part of Christ's overarching vision of what life can and will look like when the kingdom of heaven breaks into the lives of ordinary people. But as we speak about well-being, the good life, the path to human flourishing, we, we have to acknowledge that it's, it's difficult to talk about flourishing in a world that does not know peace, in a world that is well familiar and acquainted with division and hostility and war. During the Vietnam War, John Lennon wrote the song, Give Peace a Chance, and it became an anthem for the anti-war movement in the 1970s in the United States. And a few years after that song came out, John Lennon wrote the song, Imagine, to encourage us to dream of a world that has no heaven, no hell, no religion, no country, nothing to kill or die for. And I remember, uh, and you might have memories like this, awkwardly slow dancing uh, with my first girlfriend in her parents' living room while they sat on the couch uh, to this song. And uh, yeah, and so whenever I hear the song, that's what I picture. Uh, but few people realize that this song is hardly romantic, and it's certainly not peaceful. Uh, interviewed about this song, John Lennon said this, the song is an anti-religious, anti-nationalistic, anti-conventional, anti-capitalistic song, but because it's sugar-coated, it's accepted. And so as we speak about flourishing, about well-being, about the good life, as we speak about that in a world that is suffering, in a world that has pain, in a world that has war, we do need to listen to the voices like John Lennon's that says, if we imagine a world without religion, sometimes it does appear a little bit better, doesn't it? And so as followers of Jesus, we have to acknowledge that often atrocities have been committed in the name of religion and even in the name of Jesus that have nothing to do with Jesus. But we have to acknowledge that and own that and then move back towards the teachings of Jesus and understand that Jesus is not talking about an ideal life in an ideal world when he preaches this Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about a kingdom life in a fallen world. He's talking about how the power of God can meet ordinary broken people in such a radical way that it can change the course of history. Now, God's people can get that wrong. But when we get it right, when we encounter the power of Christ, we're able to imagine an entirely different kind of world. And so the seventh beatitude that we'll be looking at this morning, we could call it blessed peacemakers. And this beatitude is an invitation to make peace for the, the purposes of human flourishing. But what kind of peace does Christ imagine for us? What kind of peace is Christ proposing for the world? So I want to look at this beatitude one more time. Let's read it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the context, the peacemaker, and peacemaking. So let's begin with the context. Uh, to get to the heart of this beatitude, we're going to have to take a bit of the scenic route this morning. And as we discovered in the first service, it was a very scenic route. So I'll be a bit more swift. But you'll see that we have to go on the scenic route to really understand the gist of this beatitude. We need to understand the story of God. Where does it begin and where is it going? If you open the Bible to the first page, you'll be in the book of Genesis and you'll read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And so the story begins with a bit of mystery. The earth is already there. It's formless and dark, and there's the Spirit of God, and then the voice of God appears, and we hear this refrain, let there be. And God speaks and creates. Let there be light, and there's light. Let there be sea and earth, and there's sea, and then there's uh, you know, ocean animals. What do you call them? Fish. And then there's uh, land and there's plants. And then on the sixth day, there's humanity. And within this story is a refrain. It was good. It was good. And when God creates humanity, it is very good. And so the story of God begins with God creating an increasingly good world. But the climax of the story is the seventh day God rests. The pinnacle of all this creating is a holy day of rest. The Hebrew word to describe this day is shalom. Can you say it? Shalom. In Hebrew, shalom is never just the absence of bad things. It's never just uh, a world devoid of any negativity. In the Middle East, people still greet each other by saying salam, which is the same word, shalom. And in this greeting, it's not that they just wish that you would have no evil in your life. They are walking up to you and greeting you, shalom, wishing all of goodness that is possible to be upon you and your household. Kind of makes saying hi to one another feel pretty weak. Shalom. When there's shalom, there's well-being. There's rest. There's safety. There's security. There's a sense of beauty and goodness. And so shalom always describes everything that's required for human flourishing, for things to be well and good with humanity and creation. And so as we press into the story of God, we see that God created an increasingly good world for the sake of shalom. And this became the basis of the Sabbath, a day of rest for God's people a day to refrain from working, a window of time to be synchronized with creation. My family, uh, Julia and I and the girls, we have kept a Sabbath uh, for many years now. I did it all through my master's. I've done it all through planting a church. It's moved days, but generally the Sabbath for us is a 24-hour period of rest. We now do it uh, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown because we figured the Jews got it down right. But... What we've done over the recent years is actually invited some friends into that Sabbath process with us because it's a communal thing. So on sundown on Friday, a group of friends of us and us get together. We rotate who's home. So every third week, you're only cooking or hosting. And we have a meal. We, we get you know, situated in preparing to rest the next day. And we ask each other a simple question. Where did you see God at work in the past week? And sometimes we have amazing stories, sometimes we have very normal stories, but it helps us get synchronized together, knowing that God invites us to experience shalom in community. And when we host, we have this Sabbath candle that we let the girls light, and they get really excited. And every time we light the Sabbath candle, this candle, I ask my girls, why do we light this candle? And Maggie just goes, and then Ansley says, because God created the Sabbath. Our girls are very different. And... And then usually I try to say some sort of convoluted teaching about the Sabbath that the kids don't get. And then my friends say something profound. Like two weeks ago, my friend said, I was reading creation and I noticed God, like humanity is created on the sixth day, but our first real day of existing is the Sabbath. How cool is that? Humanity was created and the next day is the Sabbath. That's what human existence is all about. We are made to experience 
shalom. That's why Jesus, when critiquing the Sabbath, says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't supposed to be this oppressive thing. It's supposed to be this gift that helps you enjoy creation and connect with the cycles of how God made. It's meant to serve you. But the fact that God's people have had to keep a Sabbath implies that something went wrong in creation. Something went wrong with this good creation. We have not known this holy rest. That's what the story in the Garden of Eden is all about. That humanity fundamentally rejected God in all his goodness and decided to live for themselves. And so rather than shalom covering the face of the earth, now we have disease and suffering and famine and war and the like. And so as humanity has tried to make do, how to make our home in a disrupted Sabbath, in a disrupted shalom, God has been faithful. God has still promised shalom for his people. God has said the story began with shalom, and I'm not done with that. That is where this story is going. And one of the most profound glimpses of where the story is going is in the prophet Isaiah. In the 11th chapter, Isaiah hands us this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is where the story is going. And as God will say through Isaiah in chapter 65, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. When God reestablishes shalom throughout the whole earth, there will be such a fundamental change to the created order that it can only be described as new. And it's so drastic and compelling. The Apostle John gives us another vision of this new heavens and new earth in Revelation. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he'll dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. He who's seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So the story of God begins with shalom and moves toward shalom. What we have to understand is we're in the middle of that story. But we're not between a beginning and an end. We're between a beginning and a new beginning. And that is the setting for all peacemaking. We live between a beginning and and a new beginning. And so shalom makers are those who partner with what God is doing in the world in order to make the world look a little bit more like how it was originally made to be and what it one day will be. So keeping that context in mind, let's talk about the peacemaker. Because before we can get into the practicals of what does it mean to be a peacemaker, we have to consider the promise of this beatitude. They shall be called sons of God. Surely you're familiar with the saying, like father, like son. 
Uh, even as an adult, I'm sometimes caught off guard of how much I can be like my father at times. Sometimes I laugh. I just laugh. And I think, Kevin, what are you doing in the room? Like there's just these mannerisms, even like the way I move sometimes or my aloofness. I, I just think, God, like, I'm so much like my dad. And it can just have these moments of self-realization that totally weird me out. And it's similar with our kids. You know, we can see different characteristics of Julia or myself manifesting in them. But it's always most evident when our kids are behaving poorly because suddenly the language changes. The other day, uh, Maggie drew all over the wall. And when Julia got home, I said, did you see what your daughter did to our wall? <laughs> well, you... You think it's bad, but Julia actually goes drawing on the walls around our house. And so it's her characteristic coming through our children. Of course, we, it's all in jest. We're having fun, but it moves from our children you know, to your child. And this is a way of highlighting that we are made in ways that reflect our parents, like father, like daughter, like mother, like son. You see, peacemakers will be called sons of God because they're reflecting God's character in a unique way. They're acting like God. They're revealing the peacemaker into the world because that's how we were made to be. Really quickly, I want to touch on the language here. We've kept sons of God rather than children of God to highlight that this actually lifts women up out of misogyny. It's not to oppress women or to just ignore that there's daughters or children in our midst. In the ancient world, only sons had rights and privileges in the home. And so in the New Testament, throughout, when women are called sons of God, it's actually lifting them up and putting them on equal ground with men. So it's not an oppressive thing. It's a liberating thing. And to change it to children all of the time sometimes misses the radical and revolutionary bent of what's actually being said in the original. And so women, when you see sons of God, claim it as your own that God does not expect you to be subservient to men in his kingdom, but has lifted you up on equal ground. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but peacemakers will be called sons of God because they're reflecting God's character in a unique way, and they're reflecting that God is the God of peace. God is the God of peace. He meets us in a broken world, in a world that is unraveling at the seams, in a world where shalom has been disrupted, and God appears and offers peace. We see this so clearly in the life of Jesus. As Paul writes to the church um, in the letter of Colossians, he says this, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus Christ came into the world to establish peace, to make shalom between God and humanity, between heaven and earth, between people and people. But he didn't do it through war. He didn't do it through coercion. He didn't do it through violence. He did it by shedding his blood on a cross. That is how God comes into the world to establish peace. That is how God is reconciling everything to himself and moving it towards this goal of establishing shalom over the face of the earth. When we understand this, it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus was raised from the dead and he meets his disciples in that upper room in a Middle Eastern context, he appears to them and says, peace be with you. Salam. Shalom. 
May all of the abundance of God's peace be with you because you're standing before the Lord himself who has conquered death, forgiven sin, risen to new life, and I'm making all things new. Peace be with you because you're a part of it. And then if you read John's account, Jesus breathed on them. He breathed out his Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit includes nothing. Peace. So the God of peace sends his son into the world to make peace and then fills his people with his spirit who is a spirit of peace. We worship the peacemaking God. Through and through, Father, Son, and Spirit, the God of peace who speaks the words, Shalom, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he speaks those words to a shalom-disrupted world. He speaks those words to disciples who are afraid. He speaks those words to people who are broken and not sure how they're going to make it through this life. Peace be with you. All of God's goodness be upon you. So now let's consider peacemaking. Keeping the setting in mind, keeping the peacemaker in mind, what does peacemaking mean in practice? The first thing is that to be a blessed peacemaker, you must know the peace of God. You have to be reconciled to God. You're reflecting God's image into the world. Because the root and disorder of everything in this world is always traced back to sin. See, no amount of humanitarian movement, no revolution, no law, no treaty, none of those things can actually deal with the fundamental human condition. So while we might be able to make the world a better place and increase its goodness, and Christians should, that's always the exterior. It's never dealing with the actual root issue that we're sinners. We're broken. We've rejected God, and we live in a world that is disrupted because of that ongoing rejection. And so we need to be reconciled to God. And what these prophecies in Isaiah and in John show us is that a fundamental change has to happen. In order for animals to live peaceably among one another, for us to become people who cry no more, who don't have death anymore, who've overcome sin, there has to be a fundamental change of our nature. And that only happens through the power of the cross. That only happens when you hear Jesus Christ speak to you, peace be with you, and you accept his words of peace. You see, it's easy to look like a son or daughter of God. You can go out into the world and do good things, and it's good if you're doing that. You can go and try to bring peace to the world around you. You might resemble someone who is a son or daughter of God, but that doesn't make you a son or daughter of God. You are a son or daughter of God when you have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, when you have heard Jesus speak those words of peace into your soul, and he has filled you with his spirit so that you can become a person of peace in this world. And that's how our fundamental nature is changed. So if we're going to talk about peacemaking in a meaningful way, we're not talking about peacemaking in the abstract. We're talking about the God of peace who brings his shalom back to creation through his son and fills his church with his Holy Spirit. That's the sort of peacemaking we're talking about. And to talk about it in a meaningful way, you must be reconciled to the God of peace. And when we're reconciled, we can start praying a prayer that St. Francis of Assisi prayed. Lord, 
Make me an instrument of your peace. Make me an instrument of your peace. That is a a bold and courageous prayer. It's saying, God, however you want to use me in this world to bring about your goodness and your shalom into a disrupted creation, I'm open. And peace is not this optional aspect of our faith because it's a characteristic of God that he wants to manifest through us, which is why Paul wrote to the Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, here, as as far as it depends on you, Paul's acknowledging there's going to be some situations you cannot change, but whatever you can do, whatever is on your shoulders, do whatever it takes to live at peace with all people. And the church is the training ground for this. The church is the training ground for this because peacemaking is fundamentally relational. It's fundamentally relational. We're called to be at peace with one another. So if we can't be at peace with one another in this room, I hate to break it to you, you're going to have a very difficult time being at peace with people who don't share the same beliefs as you. You're going to have trouble being at peace in a world that is not interested in our faith. And so part of peacemaking means not being conflict avoidant. It means actually looking at small or big issues and talking about it. You see, peacemaking is not the same as, you know, keeping the peace. By that you mean I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to cause a stir. I'm just going to swallow this down. That is not peacemaking. Peacemaking is graciously meeting one another and talking about what's going on and looking to Christ and finding a way forward. And I want some of you to admit to yourselves that you're terrible at conflict. You're terrible at conflict. And you need to seek some help on how to grow in that that there's probably conflicts you can think of right now. There's probably people in your mind where you need to seek peace. That would be part of being a child of God, and you don't want to, and you're probably not going to. And I'd say, would you consider talking to someone on our leadership or someone in our community and saying, how how can I do conflict better? How can I do it in a way that aligns with the gospel? That goes beyond the bounds of what We can talk about this morning, but we have loads of resources and we'd love to help you become people who are great at dealing with conflict because it's fundamental to the gospel. Jesus came into the world to reconcile with people. God cares about conflict resolution. But I don't want to limit shalom making just to conflict resolution. That's important. We need to be at peace with one another. But shalom making means that any efforts to bring about what is good and right and beautiful into this place and into this world is a part of peacemaking. So when you go and serve at More Than a Roof with your community group, and you sit down with someone, and you're the only point of connection that person has with the community in a given month, and you share a meal, and you play a board gaming, you're giving a glimpse of shalom. You're giving a glimpse of what the world could look like for this individual. When someone from our community gets up and shares a story about how the community and how God has supported her in her mental health journey, you're getting a glimpse of shalom making. We're doing that because we believe whatever you're going through, you can meet God in that and experience his shalom. So we can get creative. We don't have to bound this just to conflict. It can be a proactive, positive pursuit of speaking words of life into one another, encouraging one another in the risks we're taking and saying this is a part of shalom. But we don't want to limit shalom just to the walls of the church 
or just to the question, who do we need to be reconciled to? We also want to ask, how are you asking me to be a peacemaker, Lord? Because there's loads of opportunity in the wall, outside of these walls to be involved in work of peacemaking that might not be explicitly Christian, but aligns with the goals of bringing shalom to earth. To name a few, the fentanyl crisis. Being trained to be helpful in that is a form of peacemaking. The mental health crisis. You can actually get first aid training in mental health now. That's a form of peacemaking for your community. The truth and reconciliation movement. Being involved in that in some shape, way, or form is a form of peacemaking. Peacemaking carries the implication, obviously, of caring for creation. You see, when you understand that God is bringing shalom to this world, that this world really matters, we have to take care of it, and we have to think about future generations. And I don't have time to go into it, but pacifism. When you think about nations and wars, Christians haven't always agreed on this point, and we're not going to agree on it entirely. But when we understand that Jesus Christ reconciled us and the world to God, not through the coercion of power or violent force, but through self-sacrificial love, it has to shape the way we think about how peace is going to be established on earth. So these are all these different sort of things we can start thinking about. Oh, this could be peacemaking because it moves us towards God's Shalom. But what we have to know as Christians is that, again, no movement, no revolution, no law, no treaty is actually going to establish God's shalom. Because we need the peacemaker to return and declare all things new. So what we're trying to do is give people glimmers of peace and then say, in this, this is a glimpse of what life could be under Christ's reign. But to be able to be a peacemaker, a shalom maker, you have to know the peacemaker. And you have to have practices that keep you rooted in shalom. And so I want to suggest that the essential practice that you need to take away this morning is Sabbath. Some of you are so frazzled and worn out. You don't know peace. You don't know peace within yourself. You don't know peace in your relationships. You just feel tapped out because our culture, we just consume and consume and consume. And I want to suggest that you carve out a 24-hour period of rest once a week where you cease working, you cease uh, consuming, and you learn what it means to enjoy a good creation, to enjoy a good God, and to get tastes of shalom in that cycle of rest. And if you don't know where to begin, again, we have loads of resources we could share with you. But if you want to go out into the world and bring peace in a world where you often don't even know what to do next, you need to at least know what it feels like. What it feels like to experience the peace of Christ. What it feels like when you're getting a glimpse of God's shalom within creation. And when you know that, You can go into these situations, I don't know necessarily the way forward, but I know what it'll feel like when we get there. So I can do the work. And so I want to commend the practice of a Sabbath to you. It doesn't matter what day you do it. It doesn't matter whether you do it perfectly. It is a gift from God, but I want to challenge you, if you are not keeping the Sabbath, give it a shot. Because then you might actually begin imagining shalom in a more concrete way.
Because shalom makers are those who partner with God in helping make the world more like what it was originally made to be and what it one day will be. And so blessed are you when you have a taste of that shalom and you try to put it into practice, when you try to help see relationships move in this direction of shalom, when you try to help your neighborhood move in this direction of shalom, when you try to help nations move in this direction of shalom. There are so many things you can do as a peacemaker, but you need to know the one who has come and said, peace be with you. So may the God of peace be with you, and then you'll be congratulated then the blessings are yours because the light of the kingdom of God will break forth in your life and it will change the world and we will be able to imagine a much better world in light of God's shalom.